0: Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Glad that you're here. And again, we do want to welcome you this morning to our worship service. And as a way to kick that off, I want you to join me in Romans chapter 12. And we'll begin our call to worship with uh, some uh, verses from God's word this morning. Romans chapter 12. Verses nine through twenty-one. If you know anything about Romans, you know the first eleven chapters are really just an unpacking of some really dense theology. Paul tells us a lot about the gospel, and really lays out what Christ has done for us. And then in chapter twelve, it kind of turns, and from twelve to the end of the chapter, he spends a lot of time telling us how we need to respond to that, how life needs to look as a result of that gospel. And this section is in that uh, that portion of Scripture. So Paul writes to us as a church. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, these are Paul's words to us this morning. They're God's words, rather, to us this morning. This is what God desires for Union Baptist Church. As we seek to to live in response to the gospel, these are the kinds of things that that God wants to see here at our church. And so these are the things that we seek to establish uh, and that we pray for. All the stuff that we've just read here sticks out to me, but today there's a few things that seem more poignant than others. And it's verses 12 through 15, that section that says to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And they seem more poignant to me this morning because, as some of you all remember, uh, probably two, maybe three years ago now, we had Steve and Joan Guest come. And Steve is a, he teaches at a uh, institute called SIACS over in India, and what he does there is he instructs, he works with a team that instructs pastors from India to reach the Indian people with the gospel because they found that it's, it's easier, it, it's more advantageous to try to use the people of India to reach the people of India because it's so diverse. There's all kinds of cultures within India, belief systems within India, and languages within India, and it's easier to use people that are already immersed in those cultures and train them with the gospel and send them out than it is to try to immerse oneself from the west into this eastern culture so they do that and that's that's they've been doing that for years but steve is up against a a deadline he he needs his visa renewed by tomorrow morning in order to enter back into india to that work without delaying the work that he's doing for the gospel there and so this is one way as we think about paul calling us and even God calling us to be constant in prayer and to contribute to the needs of the saints one way we can do that this morning is what we're gonna do I'm publicly gonna pray for this situation but I would invite you to join me in that prayer and to take that prayer with you throughout the rest of the day and be praying earnestly that God would move the heart of those at the embassy to uh, process his visa and approve his visa so that he can get back to work In the gospel there. So will you pray with me this morning? Our great God and Father, we know that you you are the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And Lord Jesus, you taught us in John 14.14 that if we ask anything in your name, you will do it. So we call on you today, O God, to exercise your sovereign power. We pray that you would hear our humble yet earnest prayers offered in in the name of Christ, that you would work in the hearts of the officials at the embassy, that they would serve uh, your purposes, God, by granting Steve's visa to be renewed. I don't know where it's at in the pile of things to do. I don't know who's... Uh, desk it's, it's sleeping on but God I know that you can change hearts you can, you've called the world to existence God you uphold the universe by the word of your power And you are able, according to the Proverbs, to turn king's hearts like rivers of water. And so we pray to you this morning, O God, as we seek to obey what Paul says, to to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, to live lives that are in community, to live lives that are connected, to feel the burdens of one another as we walk through our lives and not just focus on ourselves. God, we see Steve's need. We see the gospel that needs to be proclaimed and, and pastors who need to be taught and we know that you have used Steve and Joan to to do this work, and we pray that you would grant that this visa be uh, processed and that he would be given clearance, O oh God, to enter back into that work without delay. And we ask that you would do this for your glory. God, we also confess that uh, that we are not uh, known for outdoing one another and showing honor, that we are not known for being constant in prayer here at Union Baptist Church, that, that so many of these things that, that Paul says we ought to be about are not what what, uh, people who come to visit walk away seeing in our congregation. And so, God, we confess that we are not where you want us to be. We are not a warm church as as warm as we ought to be. We are not as communal as we need to be, God. We are not as loving or as gracious or as repentant or as humble as we ought to be. We are not as saturated with the love and the mercy of Christ. We are not enamored with Christ as much as we ought to be. And so we are cold in our affections toward one another so often. And so, God, what I'm praying is that you would awaken us, God, based on your desire expressed in this text this morning, Awaken our hearts to the to have zeal and, and fervent passion for Christ that spills over into zeal and fervent passion for one another that again spills over into zeal and fervent passion for the lost. God, awaken us. Let your word be powerful, God, to shake us from our sleep and our slumber. God, do not let us walk out of here this morning without our lives being changed and our habits being challenged by the Spirit of God who, desires to change lives lord remove our restraining hands because we know that ultimately you cannot be stopped lord and we pray that you will not be stopped we pray that you would subdue our wills and you would cause us god to desire what you desire and we ask it in christ's name amen
1: maybe you've come here after a week of as we talked about in sunday school living in the flesh or living in the spirit and maybe some of you are here uh, this morning and you're coming in after struggling with the flesh this week and giving into the flesh and not walking by the spirit and so uh, i'm going to pray as i'm leading us in prayer uh, maybe you should take this opportunity to make that song a prayer that you are genuinely praying to the lord that he would cleanse and purify that he would forgive and and allow you to walk by the spirit let's pray lord we come to you this morning and we we confess that so often we're limited in our perspective, Lord, we we so often keep our eyes focused on ourselves and what's going on with us and and even on our own church and the own, our, our own ministry that we're seeking to do. Lord, we fail to lift our eyes and see that your kingdom is far greater than just Union Baptist Church. And We want to pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see that mission, eyes to see that kingdom that expands not just in, in this one location, but... In places all over the world. Lord, there are there are places all over the world today that the gospel is going to be preached, disciples are going to be made, uh, community is going to be happening. And we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work. We pray as we give that you would bless those missionaries that we're seeking to support. Uh, many of them, Lord, their their work is just getting started. It's small. Lord, we pray that you'd bless them, allow them to see fruit, allow them to see people come to Christ. Uh, open the eyes of sinners, draw them into your kingdom. Encourage, Lord. There, there are some missionaries, some pastors around the world right now that are discouraged. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you'd lift them up, that you would uh, encourage them, uh, that you would comfort them. Lord, we pray there are some in certain parts of the world that are going to meet today. And their very meeting uh, is a dangerous act. Lord, if they are discovered, they they could be imprisoned, they could be fined, Uh, it it could be a very difficult time. Some of them, Lord, in some places could even, uh, by meeting today, uh, be risking their lives. We pray that you'd be with those believers. Strengthen them, Lord, what courage it takes. What love for you does it take knowing that meeting together with other believers could cost you your life. Just be with them today, Lord. Be with those brothers and sisters in places like that. Use our offerings and our tithes this morning to, to be able to continue to support works in those regions. And we do pray, Lord, that your kingdom would spread and that it would advance all over this world. And then finally, Lord, we do pray that if there are any here that we're, we're coming in after a week of not really walking in the Spirit, we pray for your forgiveness We know that your word tells us if we confess our sins that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray right now that you would do that in my own heart and in the hearts of others here today. That as we join together, as we continue to sing, as we give, as we hear your word preached, we would do it from hearts that are renewed and refreshed, having experienced once again the forgiveness of our sins. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Alright, our children can head out at this time with Miss Alexa, and uh, as they're headed out, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and we'll be back in the book of Ephesians this morning again. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 again, uh, but our focus today will be verses 4 through 7. And uh, so, as you can tell, you know, we've been through these verses a little bit before, um, but what we're seeking to do in this series through the Book of Ephesians is just to slow down a little bit and to really dig in. There, there's so much truth in the Book of Ephesians. If we want to know who God is, who we are, what has occurred in our salvation, the Book of Ephesians is one of the richest and deepest books. And it, it would be easy to just you know, sort of slide over, and you could pick up a few, uh, a few things off the surface there. Uh, but we just want, in this series, just to to dig a little deeper and see some of the other truths that are there. Uh, that it takes maybe a little more time and a little more intention to do that. So we're in Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse number one. You remember these first two words are emphatic from last week, if you remember that. But if not, if you weren't here now, you know. So. He's turning from Christ and now he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Now our passage this morning, last week we looked at you and you, but now verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them so let me just take a brief second just to remind us what the context of this is it actually goes all the way the context goes all the way back to chapter one where paul says i'm praying for you ephesian believers i'm praying for you and the substance of that prayer is he says i'm praying that you would receive a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so he's praying that the spirit would reveal some truths to them and we we saw that They already knew those truths, at least in part. So so he's praying for a richer, a deeper, a surer, more full kind of knowledge of these realities. You see that back in uh, verse 16 of chapter 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, you in my prayers. And what am I praying? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He he says, I want you to have your eyes open in verse 18. And he says, I want you to know three things. And we looked at those. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? And number three, what is the immeasurable power at work In Christ, that that is toward you. Let me just read that because I'm butchering it here. And what is verse 19? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And so really from there on into even into our chapter, he's explaining, he's saying, I want you to know the power of God that is at work in your life. And the rest of this whole section, the rest of chapter one and even into chapter two, he's explaining what that power is. And what we see is that the power that was at work in Jesus Christ by raising him up from the dead and then raising him into heaven and then seating him at the right hand of God, the father, all of that is the power that is at work in you. And in fact, it's not just a similar power. God is doing the exact same thing that he did in Jesus Christ. He's doing it in your life. And that's why chapter two, verse one says, and you. And you. This is what God did in Jesus Christ. He raised him up. He seated him at his right hand. He subjected all authority and power in this age and in the age to come under his feet. And now, chapter 2, verse 1 and you. He's going to do the same thing in your life. If you're a believer, he's already done it. And you. And so we looked at last week uh, in order to understand this work of resurrection, just like Jesus was resurrected. So we are going to be resurrected. We are resurrected in Christ. In order to understand what is the nature of our resurrection, we need to understand how we're dead. These things that happened to Jesus physically happened to us spiritually. Jesus was physically dead and God raised him up. We are spiritually dead. We're dead, chapter 2, verse 1, in our trespasses and in our sins. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no spiritual life we saw what the nature of it of that deadness was we saw kind of the bad news of it the reason that we are dead is because we're under the power of the world do you see that in in verse one you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world the world exerts an unbreakable influence Upon those who are outside of Christ, all of us who were at one time outside of Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot break away from the power of the world. We follow the course of this world. And this world, we know, is opposed to God. It's opposed to his laws. It's opposed to his ways. And in our natural condition, in our natural estate, we just simply follow along with the world. Until God breaks in, and like we just said, like we were just singing, praise the Lord, I saw the light. The light of the glorious gospel shines into our hearts and we see the foolishness and the brokenness and the emptiness of this world and then we're freed from it. But now I'm jumping ahead. That's the first reason we're dead. The second reason we're dead in our sins is not only because we follow the world, but because we're blinded by Satan. Look at verse 2 again. And once You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince. Of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is at work blinding us, keeping us from seeing the truth. He's a deceiver and he's a master at his job and he keeps the world under his sway and under his power. He deceives them and he holds out things for them that look good and that look right and that look beautiful and the world just follows along and so did we. That's why we're dead in our sins. Listen again to the passage I read last week, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Even if our gospel is veiled, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, Paul says. It's a veil. There's a veil over them that they can't see the gospel. In their case, the reason that is, he says, in their case, the God of this world, who is Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The reason unbelievers do not see the glory of Christ, the reason that they don't come running to Christ for salvation and crying out to God to redeem them and forgive them is because Satan has blinded their eyes from seeing the truthfulness and the rightness of the gospel. And so it takes a decisive work of God to shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. That's the second reason we're dead in our sins. The third reason, those are, we said, external. There's the world that allures us. There's Satan who's blinding us and keeping us from seeing. But then we have a third problem. Perhaps the greatest problem is our own sinful nature. So look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind the reason we're dead in our sins is because we want sin because internally our nature is driving us and compelling us towards sin and away from god nobody of his own volition nobody of his own will nobody in his natural condition Follows the Lord, lives for the Lord. All you have to do is look at the Old Testament history of Israel over and over and over again. God compels them to obey. He compels them. He he gives them promises of blessing. He, He gives them warnings of curses that will come if they don't. But what do they do over and over and over again? They turn away from God because they were in the flesh. There was something internally compelling them away from the Lord. And that's the way we all are. We were in the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we saw that our minds are set on the flesh. Romans 8, 6, and 7 says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind, listen to this now, All of us in our natural condition are in the flesh. And listen to what it says in Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. The mind, our reasoning, our will, our volition that is set on our flesh, our sinful desires that are innate to us, the mind that is set on that sin nature cannot submit to God. It will not submit to God. Why is that? Because we do what we want to do. And we have a desire. We have sinful desires compelling us and driving us away from the Lord. That's why we're lost in our sins. When we say, in other words, when we say lost We're really talking about lost. We mean lost all the way lost. Okay? Sometimes, again, when we talk about grace, we think just a little bit of help. And lost, well, I was kind of lost, but, you know, you kind of like me. Well, I knew kind of how I was getting there, but I, I was a little bit turned around. No, no. We're all the way lost. We're all the way dead. We are hopeless. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then the final thing that we saw last week is that we're children of wrath. We're not waiting for the judgment of God as if one day we'll find out what God thinks about us. No, all naturally, in our sin, as we are born in our natural condition, we are, do you see what it says? We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. John, in in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Whoever does not believe the wrath of God remains on him. It abides on him right now. So we're not waiting to see what God thinks. We know in our natural condition as sinners, God's wrath is abiding on us. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, all of this, if you really just dig into those first few verses, all of that leaves us really in a completely helpless and hopeless situation. There's no hope for a person that's spiritually dead. There's no way that you can save yourself. There's no way that you can just kind of pick yourself up or or just will to do a little bit better or turn over a new leaf. You cannot do it. You're in the flesh. You're led by the world. You're blinded by Satan. Your only hope is that something outside of you, a force that is greater than all of those things, reaches down and saves you. And again, when we use the word save, we really mean saved that you were desperate, that you were hopeless, and that apart from God, there was no hope. And that's what we see in verse four. So verse one began, and you, but now verse four shifts our attention away from us and says, but God. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, but God, the only hope we had the only hope of us being saved, the only hope of any change occurring in our lives is that God would do something about our miserable condition that we're in. But God, you see the hopelessness even in verse 12, jump down to verse 12, remember, of chapter two that is, remember that you were at that time, talking about before their salvation, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant, covenants of promise, and look, listen to this last little phrase here having no hope and without God in the world. That's where sinners are. In themselves, they have no hope and are without God. Our only hope of salvation is that God would intervene and that God would act in our lives. You know, the old saying, Go something like this and there are certain contexts in which there might be some truth to this but but when it comes to salvation it's not true at all it is that god helps those who help themselves god helps those who help themselves i understand what some people mean they're talking about you're in a bad situation you're praying that you know god would help you financially but then you're not willing to work like no you, if you want god to help you, you need to be willing to work that makes sense But when it comes to our salvation, what we need to understand, the best description of our salvation is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. It is a true work of salvation. Why would God act? If we really were sinners who had rebelled against him, who who were running away from him, who desired to be obedient, why would God intervene in that mess? And that's what we get in verse number four. But God... We see that, first of all, the attributes of God that would lead him to do this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. The first thing that is indicated here is because of God's mercy. The reason God intervened in your life was mercy. That word mercy is a word that means Pity. It means to take pity on someone who is in really a dire and a desperate situation. They're in a situation that they are unable to deliver themselves, and you look on them, and there's some compassion, there's some pity that I feel bad for that person, and so I'm going to help them. This is a word that is used, you know, when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. The man comes to Jesus and says, Look, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story, you know, the, the man who's lying, he's been beaten, he's been robbed, he's been left for dead on the side of the road, and uh, a Pharisee comes by and he crosses over. He doesn't want to get unclean. Uh, and, and then a high priest comes and he he looks the other way and he doesn't help that person. And then a Samaritan comes and, and picks the man up, takes him, uh, dresses his wounds, takes him to a hotel, pays for his bill, uh, takes care of everything so that he could uh, be saved. And Jesus says this in Luke 10, 36, in response to that question, he says, which of these three, those three men that saw the man on the side of the road, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man that he was talking to responded, he said, the one who showed mercy, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise, you see the word mercy there. You know what it means? That man's dead on the side of the road. He's without hope. He's been left for dead. If nobody does anything, he's just going to die. And this man has pity on him. He sees that miserable condition that he's in and he acts in order to deliver him and to rescue him. Now you come back to Ephesians. That's what that word means here. God is rich in mercy. He took pity on us. You see, the reason you're saved is not because God looked at you and said, look at this person who is so much better than everybody else. Man, look at it. Look at the he really has some some zeal to try to do what's right. He's a cut above the rest of my uh, the rest of my creation. I think I'll save that person. No, what what compelled God to intervene in our hopeless and helpless situation is his mercy he looked down on you and you were so pitiful i was in such a pitiful helpless condition that he had mercy on me he took pity on me you know it's one thing to help somebody and like in the story of the good samaritan here understandably this man who's lying dead on the side of the road really has done nothing that we know of in that story that would be the cause of his being there he was just traveling and somebody somebody jumped him and and stole his stuff and beat him and so it really wasn't any fault of his own that he found himself lying on the side of the road but when it comes to us uh, when it comes to us our miserable condition is our own fault we've chosen to rebel against God we've we have sinned against God and so this makes this mercy that God has on us even more remarkable You know how hard it is to help somebody that won't help themselves? You know how hard it is to want to help somebody that just keeps doing the same thing over and over again? And you say, you know, I I helped you last time and I told you not to do that anymore. But here you are again. This is your own fault. Now you've got to stand on your own two feet and take the consequences. That's the way that we think about it. But when God looked at us, he saw people who had chosen willingly, volitionally to sin against him, to rebel against him over and over and over again, and yet he still took pity on us. He still had mercy upon us. What great mercy it is. That might be why it's called, why it says that he is rich in mercy. We can tend to show people mercy that we feel like, man, they could... They, they need some mercy. They, they deserve some mercy. But God's mercy is a kind of mercy given to people who do not deserve it. One commentator says this, In the present context, it is God's compassion or pity on the sinners who are suffering the calamity of sin. In this instance, the calamity of sin is not something undeserved. Yet God extends his mercy towards sinners because he loves them and knows that they are helplessly entrapped in their own snare. They have nothing to commend them to God. You know, one of the the amazing things, as you stop and just reflect and meditate on this passage here, is that God moved toward us. He moved toward us in mercy at the exact same time that wrath. Do you see this? Look at verse number three. We were carrying out the desires of of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. That means that we were objects of God's wrath. His anger was burning against you and against me because of our sins. We were objects by nature of his wrath. And yet at the same time, he's moving toward us in pity and in mercy. You see this again, even clearer in verse 5. You see verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins in this condition. So God didn't wait for you to kind of pick yourself up and dust yourself off and make yourself look a little bit presentable. He didn't wait till you take that first step toward God and he says, all right, they've taken that first step. Now I'm going to take a step toward them. No, he looked at you in your condition. His anger was burning against you. You were running away from him. You were rebelling against him. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and he had mercy on you at the same time That you were an object of his wrath. This is what Romans 5 says. Romans 5 7 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. If you know somebody that, and your wife or somebody that you really love and you think so much of them, you you might die for them. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That's not what God did in Christ. He didn't choose the good people and then die for them. No, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't look for the people that had it a little bit together. He didn't look for the people that were shining a little bit brighter, were a little bit holier, a little bit more righteous, and then say, okay, that's who I'm going to die for, that's who I'm going to save. He died for us while we were still sinners. I think this is the beauty of of God's attributes. You know, God's attributes, he has attributes like us. He has emotions in one sense like we do. Uh, He's described as having anger and having love and having compassion. But his attributes are are holy attributes. And what I mean by that, holiness means the idea of being separated from sin. And so God's attributes are not mixed and mingled with sin. You know, here's my problem. Anger is not always a wrong thing. Anger sometimes can be a right response toward bad things happening, right? Somebody does some injustice, there's anger. That's not necessarily a wrong thing, but here's our problem. Our sin always gets intertwined with our emotions, whether that's love or anger or compassion, whatever it is, our sin always mixes in the middle of it. But when it comes to God, God is holy in his wrath. He's angry in such a way that is not sinful. He has wrath in such a way that is not mixed with, With sin, And one of the ways that is, I think, is that his anger is not out of control. Most of us, when we get angry, we have a really hard time restraining that. We just let those words come out. And later on, we have to come back and say, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, I I just said that I was angry and I just wasn't able to hold my tongue. Right. Or I did that because our, our emotions are not holy. They're, they're unholy. They're mixed with sin. We have no self-control. But when it comes to God, God is able to have wrath against us and yet at the same time move toward us in pity and in love. That's because, that's because he is holy. And again, notice he is rich in mercy. It doesn't just say that God sometimes acts in mercy, that sometimes he takes pity, but he is rich in mercy. And why is it that God took Pity. Let's kind of trace it backwards. He says he's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did God pity us? Why did he take this pity on us? Because he loved us. Because he had this great love. I think this great, the reason this love is called great love, uh, it could be because there's a great quantity of it, but, but I think it's a great, great because of the kind of love it is. It's a love for his enemies. You know, it's one thing, again, to love somebody who's your friend. It's one thing to love your family. Sometimes even that's difficult. It's one thing to love your neighbor. It's one thing to love people who who seem to be like good people in your community. All of that's good. But there's a whole nother level of love when you are able to love those who are your enemies. Isn't that what Jesus taught? He said, You've heard it said in Matthew 5, you've heard it said. You know, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We're called to love not just our neighbors, not just our friends, not just people that are good in the community. We're called to love our enemies. And God doesn't call us to do something that He doesn't do. He loved us. And we were His enemies. What an amazing thing. What a display of love that that this great act, this this great act of mercy that he would display to us is given in love to his enemies. What what an amazing thing. We should praise God this morning. In this is love, 1 John tells us, not that we loved God. I didn't look and see who loved him and then saved them. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His love, listen this morning, if you don't get anything out... His love towards you is what initiated and brought about your salvation. The reason you are here this morning is not because of who you are or the things that you've done. The reason that you are here this morning as a child of God, if indeed you are, is because of the initiating love of God. And apart from that, uh, we would not be here. 1 John 4, 19 goes on to say, We love because he first loved us. So that's the attributes of God. But secondly, this morning, see the actions of God. The the attributes lead him to take action in our miserable, helpless, hopeless situation. He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Therefore, he acted to remedy our problem, to remedy our sin. And there are three verbs here. There There are three expressions that tell us what he did. And each one of them, are a remedy to our problem of being dead in sin. Do you see the three things that he did? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then number 2, he raised us up. Verse 6, he raised us up with him. And then number 3, he seated us with him in heavenly places. And each one of those is a remedy to, to our sin problem each one of those as we think about what does it mean to be dead in sin what we're going to see is that each one of these to be made alive to to be made alive to be raised up and then to be seated with christ each of them is a remedy to our sin problem i think we we can see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins it said that was what what our problem was so god made us alive it's a resurrection We were locked in the sinfulness of this world under the sway of Satan, we saw in those first few verses. Now God has raised us up out of the domain of darkness. We've ascended into heaven with Christ. We were children of wrath. That was part of our problem before. We were dead in sin. We were children of wrath. Now God has brought us into his very own presence and we are seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places, no longer the objects of his wrath, but now the objects of his eternal kindness. Praise the Lord this morning. If you you understand what God has done, if if you understand the despair and the hopelessness you were in, and you understand the greatness of what God has prepared for you, there's nothing left to do but to praise God. Let's look at these very quickly. He made us alive, first of all. He made us alive. We were dead in sin, and he made us alive. We've we've been given spiritual life. We've been given spiritual life. You know, we were, at one time, we said this deadness was displayed in the fact that we were under the control of the world. That's what it meant to be dead in sins that we're following the course of this world. But now, because the Spirit of God has entered our life and we are given new life and we're given the Holy Spirit we are able to live in a way that's not bound by this world anymore. So in Romans 12, Jared read that, I think. uh, It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's making you new so that you don't have to follow the course of this world anymore, Christian. What everybody else is doing, whatever the fad of the day is, whatever the philosophy, whatever the mindset of the world is, Now because the Spirit of God is in you and you've been made alive, you've been made new, you don't have to follow the world anymore. In fact, you shouldn't follow the world. You should not be conformed to this world, but you should be transformed by the renewing, the making new of your mind. You've been set free from the bondage of the world. Christian, live in that. Don't go along with the world. Don't do what the world is doing. Don't be conformed. Don't just fit into the mold that the world has for you that's the that's the way we lived before we were christians now that god has made you new be transformed by the renewing of your mind learn to think as god thinks learn to live as god wants you to live don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so we're not dead in that way anymore we were blinded by satan we said that was the second expression of our physical of our spiritual death we were blinded by satan to see from seeing the gospel but now we've been given eyes to see i'm going to read that same passage i've cited a couple times but i'm going to finish reading it this time because it tells us the great news he says even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light Of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god so there was that death that we talked about they can't see satan has blinded them and they cannot see the beauty of the gospel but listen to what god does for god who said let light shine out of darkness what's that a reference to genesis 1 god said let there be light and light shine forth the god who did that now has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You've been set free from the darkness that you were in if you're a Christian here this morning because God has shined the light of the glory of Christ in your heart. No longer are you blinded by Satan. You're not dead anymore. And then one more thing, we said that we were in bondage to our own sinful desires. We were dead because we have this sin nature that compels us toward disobedience. But if you've been born again, if you've been made alive, like he says here, God has remedied that problem as well. Romans 6, 3 says this, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, you have been spiritually raised and been given new spiritual life that enables you to walk in newness of life. You don't have to, listen Christian, you do not have to give in to those sinful desires anymore. As I mentioned earlier, you know, said, well, I just got angry and I couldn't help it. I said, no, you're a Christian now. You can help it. You know, I saw that woman and she looked beautiful. And man, I just have such a struggle with lust. No, you are a Christian now. The spirit of God's in you. You have new spiritual life. You've been raised with Christ. You have the ability now as one who has the spirit of God to overcome that temptation. We've been given. So no longer are we dead in our sins. No longer are we unable to fight sin and then thirdly or secondly rather we've been made alive we've been raised with christ this is the second word here we've been raised with him the second uh, word also i think this includes not just the idea of being raised i don't think he's saying the same thing again you were made alive and you were raised to be raised i think here has more than just a resurrection. I think he's talking about ascending into heaven. Christ, in chapter 1, was raised up into heaven. He he ascended into heaven. And so we, in a sense, because of our union with Christ, have been raised with him. We are, in a sense, in heaven with him. I think we see this in Colossians chapter 3. It says this, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, your identity is no longer here in this world. Your identity, your home is no longer uh, centered in, in this world. Instead, you've been raised with Christ. You have been exalted into heaven with Jesus Christ in a sense. Positionally, we have already been elevated. We think, well, one day I'm going to go to heaven. One day I'll be in heaven. But positionally, in that sense, we are already in heaven with Christ because of our union with him. We've been lifted out of this sinful world and out of the dominion of Satan. 1 John 5 says this We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but the one who has been born of God protects him, or God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We've been lifted out of the power and the domain of Satan. We're in heaven, we're seated with, with Christ. Jesus died in Galatians 1, 3, and 4. He died to deliver us from this present evil age. Your life is not in this world anymore. You're seated with Christ in heaven. You've been raised into heaven with Him, and that's why we sing this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My identity is not here any longer. I've been raised with Christ. And then thirdly, we see that we are seated with Christ Not only have we been made alive, not only have we been raised up into heaven with Christ, but we are seated with Jesus Christ. That's the third act of God here. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To be seated, you you all know what it means to sit down, don't you? Right? You come in, you've been working in the field, you've been at work, what do you do? You come home and you sit down. My work's done. I can rest. I, I can relax. Some of you got an easy chair, and you think, you know, you punch that clock, you, you do that drive home, and you're thinking the whole time, I'm going to get in that chair, and I'm going to sit down because I'm done. My work is completed. And then you get home, and your wife's like, I need you to do this and this. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but but uh, to be seated is, is a picture of rest, right? And that's what Christ has done. He's accomplished his work. He's seated. All right? He's not fighting anymore. He's not striving anymore. He, he completed our redemption. He ascended into heaven and he is now seated. His work is accomplished. But think about this you are seated with him as well. The work of your redemption is done. You're secure, believer. If you truly are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are seated with him in heaven. That, that means a couple things. One, it means your redemption is done. Hebrews 10, 11 says this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, talking about the Old Testament. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? because that one sacrifice that he had had given was enough to complete our redemption. It's done. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you have believed in him, you are seated with him. Your work of redemption is done. It's a done deal. You're secure. He's seated. But it also is a picture of the fact that he's victorious. We saw that in chapter one, right? He's seated and he's ruling and reigning over his enemies. And there we are seated with him as well. Our enemies have been defeated. Satan and the world and and all of these things, they're defeated enemies. So when Satan tempts us and when Satan comes against us, we need to be reminded we are seated with Christ. We are in an amazingly secure position. Satan would have to be able to ascend into heaven and defeat Christ in order for your faith to be defeated. And then finally this morning, We see the anticipation of God. So we saw his attributes, the attributes of God, the actions of God. And then very quickly here at the end, the anticipation of God. All of this is said in verse seven, so that why did he do all of this? What's the purpose that he's working toward for all of this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's his end goal? What is he working toward? Well, the the end goal is that he might display his grace to us eternally. This work that he's done in your life of redeeming you and saving you and forgiving you, it's only a little foretaste. His plan is to display his grace forever and ever and ever. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you. God's plan for you eternally is to show you kindness. Now just stop again and think about that. Where did we start? We started dead in our sins, hopeless and helpless. God saved us. He made us alive. And he brought us from being objects of his wrath, objects of his disdain, objects of his judgment and condemnation. He took us from that position. Now when we end these verses, we are seated with Christ And he is going to eternally show his kindness to you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But that's the grace that God has done in our lives. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you've been saved. That whole whole scenario that we've just talked about, that only happens by the grace of God. And what great grace it is. Pray with me this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this work in our lives. Lord, we confess that apart from you, uh, we would be eternally lost. We would be the objects of your wrath forever. And yet you took pity on us because you loved us. You gave us spiritual life. You raised us up from the dominion of this world. And you seated us with your son. And you have a plan to eternally demonstrate your grace to us forever and ever. We praise you this morning for that grace. That's all that we can do. We, we praise you. You are worthy of all the glory and all the honor. Thank you for saving us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.